and... This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Kenosha is preparing to explode. But why? Why is Kenosha, Wisconsin preparing to explode. Well, one might say, well, it's because of all the behavior up there. It's because of all the problems. It's because of all of the, well, in reality, it's because of all the attitudes. Attitudes always precede behavior, always. So when we see paraded across our screens, the wildness of people parading through the streets, putting it mildly, not parading, but marauding through the streets, crashing into windows, breaking up car windows, starting fires, and so on. We're looking at behavior. We despise the behavior, and we wonder how we can change the behavior. The problem is the behavior itself is not the problem. The problem is the attitudes that are giving rise to the behavior. Unfortunately, In America, we're prone more to deal with outward behavior than we are with inward attitudes. But today, we're going to focus on inward attitudes. Because in reality, to change America, it must be an inside-out job. An inside-out job. There must first be a change of attitude before a change in behavior. Now, that is true also with regard to politics, with regard to our what we see in terms of decisions concerning policy, concerning uh, edicts, all of these things that are coming down, they are preceded and driven not by behavior, but by attitudes. The behavior is merely a reflection of the inner attitudes, the attitudes of the heart. As Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can even know it? And that's our problem. Today on Viewpoint, we're going to attempt to translate this matter of attitude in such a way that we individually, every one of us who is listening and uh, speaking, actually, on this end of the, uh, the microphone, will be able to gain a better understanding of what actually has happened in our country and what can happen on the positive side if there is a change of attitude. Remember, attitudes always precede behavior. So I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer's conversation as always with ever-increasing conviction talk that transforms and today is no exception. In fact, it very well may be that as a result of our conversation here today, there might be a change in your own life. There might actually result a change in your own family, a change in your congregation, a change in your ministry, Pastor, a change, a change you can really believe in. The problem is that we almost always in America want to develop change by something that I can do rather than something 
that I should be. And from a biblical standpoint, from God's standpoint, if we would do what we must do, we must first be what we must be. We must first be what God expects us to be. But how are we going to know exactly what it is that God expects us to be? Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus himself in his first, at least as far as we know, his first open ministry declaration called the Sermon on the Mount actually gives us the definition. He helps us to understand what it means to have a godly attitude that changes everything. I remember back about 40 years ago, maybe 45 years ago now, when I was given a copy of a book. Actually, it was a uh, a pair of books all on the same subject by a famous pastor who had written a book called The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor. He had written the book or pair of books called The Beatitudes or The Sermon on the Mount. And as I read that pair of books, my eyes were open, my heart was opened as a Christian to begin to see things a little more clearly from God's viewpoint. And so I really appreciated Martin Lloyd-Jones' tremendous insights that that pastor has had, the British pastor. But in reality, Jesus had already given us those insights if we just had and gave it the time to pay attention. And so we're going to take a look at those attitudes of being that we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 12, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to apply them in such a way. Don't think this doesn't matter to you. Friends, this is the very heart of our problem. The heart of the matter is always the heart. And the heart, the attitudes, are the reflection of our hearts the state of our minds and our thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, as a woman thinks in his heart, as a child thinks in their heart, so they are. As a generation thinks in its heart, so it behaves. You see, the thoughts of the heart are the things that actually create the attitudes. Whether they're righteous attitudes or unrighteous attitudes. We would rather correct the behavior than we would the attitude. This is one of the major problems of parenting. Parents are more interested in correcting behavior than they are in dealing with the underlying attitudes that are producing the behavior. From God's viewpoint, it's an attitude problem. But from our point of view, it's a behavior problem. So you can have behavioral modification, as the psychologists have uh, shown, but it doesn't change the attitude. And God is more concerned about the attitude than he is the action because he knows that the action is actually being produced by the attitude. Now, one of the wonderful things that we can look at that are not, is not contained in the Sermon on the Mount is something that will set the stage for 
the next week or so as we prepare the way for a time of national attitude focus called Thanksgiving. The synonym for Thanksgiving that embraces the word attitude is the word gratitude. Without gratitude, we become, in effect, gods ourselves. Because the lack of gratitude implies that I am driven by myself and I am the master of my fate and everybody must kowtow to me and mine. Gratitude allows me to open my mind and open my heart first to God and then to others and it changes everything. In everything, give thanks. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. A matter of attitude. That's what we're talking about here. If we want to change America, if we want to see change that we can believe in, there has to first be a change of attitude. That means a change of heart. Because the heart of the matter is always the heart. In 2002, I came out with a book called Renewing the Soul of America. One person at a time, beginning with you. As many of you know, it was endorsed by 38 national Christian leaders. Why did 38 National Christian leaders endorse this book when there were so many other books about America and about America changing, about doing this, that, or the other? Most of them were politically oriented. This book was very different. They saw it as being very different, and they saw it as providing the real answers for the change that we could believe in if we were willing to have the proper attitude. In this book, every single chapter begins with a statement at the top of the page concerning the issue that was really at hand. Chapter 2 is called A Nation at Risk. But at the top of the page are these words. There is no national character without personal character. You see, we like to think that we can change the nation without changing the person. But there's no national character without personal character. In other words, it's the aggregate of all of our characters or all of our attitudes that actually produce a national character or attitude. Chapter 3 is called Remembering Our Foundations. But at the top of the page are these words, a house with a crumbling foundation will soon be a crumbling house. You see, what we want to do, we think we want the house to be rebuilt and restored. But the problem is with the foundation. And the foundation, from God's viewpoint, is our attitudes. You see, attitudes always precede the results, whether good or bad. 
attitude, a matter of attitude. And so uh, if you want to really understand what must be done in our minds, in our hearts, individually, starting in our families, starting in our marriages, starting in uh, the way we treat our children or not, uh, pastors, the way we treat our congregations, the attitudes of our hearts, and so on, I urge you to get a copy of the book, Renewing the Soul of America, one person at a time, beginning with you. This book actually points the way as 38 national Christian leaders of many stripes affirmed. So, it's an $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 per postage and handling. I don't think you're going to be disappointed because, you see, the message concerning our attitudes is so foundational that it doesn't change. And so the book that was written in 2002 actually is more relevant today than it was then. It's amazing. It just really is amazing. Now, we want to shift from that to focus on what Jesus had to say about our attitudes. And he went upon a mountain or a hillside. We call it, uh, historically, it's referred to as the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, many years ago, in 1986, I actually stood on that site and addressed people, much like Jesus did, uh, that were gathered around as I looked out on the Sea of Galilee. And it began to rain, but it didn't smother our spirits uh, because we were focused on something that was so uh, profound and stirred our souls. So here, you know, you're familiar with this. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted that the prophets that were before you. That is the set of Beatitudes at the very outset of the three-chapter Sermon on the Mount, starting with Matthew chapter 5. And so we're going to break this down and take a look at how this applies to our lives today. Even as professing Christians, maybe especially as professing Christians, because if we claim to be born again, if we claim to be undergirded and ruled by the Spirit of Christ, then these Attitudes of being that Jesus has described here should be characteristic of our lives. And isn't it interesting that Jesus said, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, well, 
nobody's perfect. Well, that's true. Jesus was, but nobody else is perfect. But he said, be ye therefore perfect. And he wasn't mincing words. He wasn't playing games. He wanted us to press on unto perfection. So, if we're going to press on under perfection, we have to get a handle on our attitudes. Because attitudes undergird behavior. They are the driving force of all behavior, good, bad, or ugly. The first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, do you want to be blessed? Do we want to be blessed? I don't know of a single person that doesn't really want to be blessed. The problem is that people aren't willing to do and to be what is necessary in order to be blessed. God promised Abraham, said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So to be blessed is also for the purpose of being a blessing. So if we live out these attitudes of being, we will of necessity, by virtue of the very character that is revealed, we will be a blessing. So the question is, do you want to be a blessing? If you want to be a blessing, then we must cooperate with Jesus' foundational principles for being a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Question, do you want to have the kingdom of heaven characterize your life here on this planet? As we're preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ? The beloved disciple John said, whoever has the hope of the second coming of Christ in him will purify himself even as Christ is pure. Oh, Purity. Isn't it interesting that one of the Beatitudes says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Then we must be pure in heart. But what do those things mean? You see, we always say the devil's in the details, but so is the truth. That's right. And so we want to kind of massage these things in our minds and our hearts so that we can apply them and they could become a living reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be poor in spirit doesn't mean you have a hangdog look on your face. It doesn't mean that you disfigure your face to make yourself look as if somehow you're uh, poor in spirit, so to speak. To be poor in spirit essentially means you're walking in humility. In other words, you're not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. On the other hand, you're thinking as highly of yourself as you ought to think. A lot of people will take that passage that says that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and they think that they can create a self-styled humility of being poor in spirit. No. What you're trying to do is gain attention. You're trying to gain attention to make it look like you have the attitude of being poor in spirit, when in fact, you're actually trying to gain attention for yourself. 
and draw attention to yourself. That's not being poor in spirit. That is being proud in spirit. What did the scripture say about pride? Well, pride goeth before us destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is one of the uh, one of the things that you and I have to face more than anything else. Pastors have a horrible uh, temptation with regard to pride. It's not just politicians. It's pastors as well. Every once in a while while I'm speaking, an attitude or a feeling will well up in me when it seems like, wow, God is really speaking through me today. And the moment I'm thinking about that, I'm realizing I'm being challenged right at that moment to walk in pride. And so without the people knowing, right in the middle of while I'm speaking, I will whisper, get thee behind me, Satan. It is written, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if we really want to humble ourselves before the Lord, the number one thing we must do, it's not a feeling, Humility is not a feeling. It's an attitude of the heart. And it begins with submitting to the word, the will, and the ways of the Lord. It begins with a willingness to set aside my own thoughts, my own predilections, my own cultural demands, whatever whatever the people are saying, the public uh, opinions, and so on, It requires that I set aside all of that and humble myself to receive what God has to say. In other words, his viewpoint. If I'm not willing to do that on each and every issue, I'm not walking as poor in spirit. But on the other hand, I'm elevating myself to a place of equality with God. Isn't that exactly what Satan did? And then he tried to seduce Eve in the garden to do exactly the same thing, to question what God had said and to question God's motivation. Aren't we prone to do that? One of the most classic ways that we do that is with regard to the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We have so changed God's word will and ways with regard to marriage, divorce and remarriage, that we have actually, over the past 60 years, completely changed God's clear words with regard to those issues. When Jesus said, whoever divorces their spouse commits adultery, and whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery, what is it about that that we don't understand? In fact, he actually said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. You see, we really aren't walking in humility. We're not prepared to be blessed because we want 
blessing without the burden of a holy, godly attitude being poor in spirit. Then God says, or Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that doesn't sound like a very blessed activity, does it? Mourning. People mourn for the dead. Yes, we mourn for the loss of one of our listeners uh, just the other day in giving tribute to that sister who had been one of the longest-term listeners to this program and had actually raised her children to disciple them by listening to Viewpoint. And we mourned. But we also celebrate because we know what her attitude was, what her behavior was, what her direction was, and her commitment before God. Blessed are they that mourn. But what do we mourn for? What do you mourn for? And why do you mourn? We'll talk about that when we get back. This is Viewpoint. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a For Pastors Only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Attitudes always precede actions. The problem is not with the behavior. The problem is with the attitude of being that preceded the behavior. And so Jesus did not focus particularly on behaviors. What he's focused on is attitudes because he knows that the behaviors always flow from the heart. Attitudes come from the heart. That's why he said that the divorce issue is a heart issue. It's not just a behavior issue. The behavior flows from the heart. And if you want to know what the Bible actually says concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you can go to our website, saveus.org, and look under fact sheets, and you'll find a seven-page outline, all in logical order, You just can't miss it. It's so simple to follow. No confusion what the Bible really says about that issue. Then, once you see that, you have to make a decision. Am I humble before God? Am I poor in spirit? Am I willing to submit myself to what God, remember, he is God. It's not just an opinion. Opinions belong to us. Truth belongs to God. So if I'm willing to submit, then the Holy Spirit will guide me into all truth and will guide me as to what I must do in response to what I must be, you see. 
Doing always flows from being. Doing or behavior always flows from attitudes that precede it. Now, we were talking about blessing, blessed are they that mourn. So what do we mourn for? Well, certainly, when I grew up uh, as a child, as a, as a young uh, child, uh, I, I grew up loving my country, quite frankly. I loved the flag. I loved the song, the patriotic songs of the country. They were inspiring to me. I know virtually all of them by heart. They're truly inspiring. The flag was very inspiring. Still is, to some extent, but I mourn. Why do I mourn? I mourn because those symbols no longer reflect the purity of what the country stood for. We weren't poor in spirit, and so I mourn. I mourn over that which has been lost. Here's our problem, though. We mourn over the consequences, but very seldom do we really mourn about the cause. Have you noticed that uh, there will be a great hue and cry that goes up from uh, sociologists and so on, uh, pastors and so on, concerning fatherlessness? And we're told that fatherlessness is at the root of most of the horrible statistics that define our time socially. Okay, that's a truth. So what do we do? We look at the behaviors that are following from fatherlessness rather than the causes that are creating the fatherlessness. Why won't we look at the causes? Because they require that we humble ourselves and submit to God's viewpoint concerning them and change. And that's where we're not willing to do that. We consider that too politically delicate. We consider it too personally delicate. So even pastors will not deal with the root problems. Why? Because we're really not willing to mourn. Not really. We mourn for the consequences, but we don't mourn for the causes, the attitudinal causes that brought about these horrific consequences. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't use that word meek much these days. In fact, that's understandable. We have other words that uh, tend, we tend to use for meekness. Somebody has says that uh, meekness is power under control. Well, I suppose that that is a reasonable way to look at it in one respect, but that's not the totality of meekness. We were told that Moses was the meekness, meekest of men, yet he was the leader that God chose to confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. That doesn't sound much like meekness, does it? Not the way we think of meekness. Meekness has a moral quality of humility and gentleness about it. But was Moses gentle in dealing with Pharaoh? No. Was Jesus gentle in Matthew chapter 23 when he addressed the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyer, religious lawyers of the day and said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you're full of dead men's bones and so on? 
No, that's not what we think as meekness. But overall, Jesus was characterized in his attitude by patience with people, humility, and a gentleness. Moses had to lead the people with authority, but a certain kind of shepherding gentleness. So a meek person is not harsh and is not proud. That's characteristic of wickedness. Have you noticed today a growing tendency, even on Christian websites and people's response to things uh, on social media and so on, even Christians, a tendency to harshness, bitterness, anger, lashing out. It's unbelievable. And that's, by the way, why about 10 years ago, we removed from our Save America website the ability of people to respond on that website in words. We removed it because there were too many people that couldn't control themselves. They were not living in meekness. They were not willing to submit themselves. They were not poor in spirit. They were not uh, mourning for the sin. No. Their attitudes were angry and bitter. If you have allowed an attitude of bitterness to dig into your soul because you're trying to protect yourself, your capital S self, you've been injured, you've been whatever, and uh, you've allowed a root of bitterness to spring up in your life, the Bible tells us that that root of bitterness will not only destroy you, but will destroy everyone around you. You're not walking in poor in spirit. You're not walking in a a mourning for uh, the sin of mankind and those that treat people. You're you're actually... uh, walking in pride, an attitude of pride that's resulting in bitterness because it's all about you. You see how these things work? And Satan is so tricky. He is so subtle in the way he deals with us and lures us into attitudes that paralyze, that destroy our faith, that destroy our peace, that destroy our witness. Friends, if we want to see our country change, it's got to start in our own minds and our own hearts. I know that as much as anybody. When I come before you here on this program, it's a serious thing. Because the moment I speak, I'm speaking back at myself. That's a hard thing. Blessed are those which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you know that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is an attitude? Notice it doesn't say, blessed are they which are hungry and thirst, thirst, thirsty for righteousness. It says, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's an affirmative action there. In other words, the attitude of our minds and hearts has to be that the predominant thing that we're seeking in our life is righteousness 
Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A lot of people say they're seeking first the kingdom of God, but they leave out the righteousness part. You know why they leave out the righteousness part? Because they have an attitude that's prideful and they don't want to submit to God's definition of unrighteousness. Yet the scripture tells us that Jesus is going to judge the world with truth and righteousness. Jesus is going to judge the world with truth and righteousness. Why? Because he was the living truth. Why? Because he was pure and holy and righteous before God and obeyed God without exception. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. When I read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book 40-some years ago on the Sermon on the Mount, I'll tell you, it just, um, it was like salting the oats to seek God's righteousness, to walk in his attitudes of being. to allow him to adjust my attitude. And when he began to adjust my attitude, my behavior started to change, even in our own marriage. It was amazing. My wife saw it. Over a period of 30 days, it just began to change everything to the point where we actually began to do marriage seminars up and down the state of California. We actually wrote a book, Lasting Love, Enduring secrets for marital success and so on. After 55 years now of marriage. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy. God is a God of mercy. But did you know that the scriptures say that God's mercy is extended only to those who obey him? Did you know that? I'll bet you didn't know that. His mercy is extended only to those who seek to obey Him. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they loved one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. If I truly understand how much I personally need God's mercy... It frees me in my own inner mind and heart to extend mercy to others. Otherwise, I will be judgmental. 
When the scripture says, judge not that you be not judged, it's not talking, and by the way, that's in the Sermon on the Mount as well. It's not talking about not forming an opinion. It's not talking about uh, not discerning between right and wrong, uh, evil and uh, good, and so on. It's talking about condemning people for those things. Judgment is limited to God. That is condemnation. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. On the other hand, we are discerned. We are to discern that which is right, that which is true, that which is honest, that which is lovely, that which is of good report, and so on. We are to do that. <clears throat> so how are we to understand this blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy? People misunderstand this. They think that mercy is just overlooking sin, overlooking wrongdoing, overlooking offenses. No, that's not mercy. It might be a kind of compassion, but it's not mercy. Mercy only comes into play in the face of guilt. If you want to go before the court and you know that you're guilty in one way or another, what you want and what you're pleading for is mercy, not grace. We've totally perverted the Bible and its implications, the message, by calling mercy grace. When we do that, we're actually removing the meaning of mercy, which implies my guilt, why I need mercy, and giving the impression that God, through grace, winks at my sin. No, God doesn't wink at your sin. He's going to hold you accountable for your sin unless you walk in repentance, unless you walk in obedience and repentance. And remember, the mercy... Uh, God extends mercy, as the Bible says, only to those who obey him. Now, that may seem strange. Why would that be? If you're obeying, why would you need mercy? It's because you begin to realize that no matter how much you seek and try to obey, you fall short. This was the problem that Israel had. They had the law. 613 laws, and they were supposed to keep them all. And God said, if you'll keep all these laws, then you're going to be a blessed above all people. And if you don't keep all these laws, you're going to be a curse among the nations. And they became a curse. So they had to come. The law was their schoolmaster, as Paul said, to lead them to a position of realize they needed God's mercy that was extended to them through the sacrificial lamb that once and for all died for their sin. But they've rejected God's mercy in that regard. Therefore, they're still under judgment. It's not that difficult to understand these things, but we have so slipped away from the foundations of our faith and understanding what God is looking for in our lives. 
blessed are the merciful. He wants us to seek first the kingdom of God. He wants us to seek to obey his voice, to do his will, and then to realize how much we fall short and so cry out to him in mercy and, Lord, forgive me, uh, for I have sinned. I have come short of the glory of God. And then we repent and we turn away from our sin and we seek to walk in perfection and in righteousness before him hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the religious, for they shall see God. He didn't say, blessed are the Jews, or blessed are the Gentiles, uh, if they go to church, or if they go to synagogue. He didn't say that. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. My wife's name is Kathleen, which means pure, Pure in heart. Is she absolutely pure in heart? No. Does she seek in every way to live out a purity in heart? Yes. When she fails to do that, you see, I can extend mercy. Because she's human just like I am. Just like you are. Pure in heart. The Bible says that only the pure in heart will see God. Question. Are you pure in heart? People are singing all the time these days. uh, Oh, the glory of your presence, and I, I want to see your face. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure you want to see his face? How are you living? What is your attitude? What are your attitudes? What are the behaviors that are flowing from your attitudes? Are they consistent with what Jesus is describing here as the attitudes of being that are the foundation for all blessing? You see, as this applies to us individually, it applies to our families. It applies to our marriages. Then extended out from that, it applies to our communities. It applies to our cities. It applies to uh, our states and then also the nation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Oftentimes, people mistake this and think that one must bring about compromise continually to be a peacemaker. Compromise in and of itself is not evil. But there are some things you can't comp- you just can't compromise on. You can't compromise on whether or not you can earn your way into the kingdom of God. Because it's by grace through faith, not of ourselves. There's no compromising on that. There's no compromising on who is God. Who is the Messiah? Even though the whole New Age movement is declaring that you're your own Messiah. We're all saving ourselves. The whole new movement toward transhumanism is about self-salvation from technology. You can't compromise on things like that. That's not being a peacemaker. That's just being a compromiser. And the road to hell is paved on compromised corner. A peacemaker is one who has an attitude that is not cantankerous, that is 
willing to listen to other people, that is willing to consider and willing to make room for others on issues that are not a principle. And then willing to be tolerant, not accepting, but tolerant of that which you cannot agree to and compromise on. Today, we've changed the whole meaning of tolerance, haven't we? Tolerance now means you have to accept what everybody says as is equal to what you believe. That is not being a peacemaker. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For righteousness' sake. We don't want to go out and run after persecution, do we? We're not seeking to become martyrs, because in reality, one who seeks to become a martyr is being driven by pride. He wants to be known as a martyr. That's just the opposite of the Spirit of Christ. Jesus didn't go out crying to become a martyr. He knew because of the prophets that that was what was going to happen. But even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried, Lord, Father, deliver me, take this cup from me if at all possible. But he knew that he had to obey the Father because it was the only hope for mankind. So he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death on the cross. You see, humility has a lot to do with whether we're willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. An awful lot of people today are willing to compromise in order not to be persecuted. May I suggest to you that Jesus himself said very clearly, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Why do you think you should be different than your Lord? Then he says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Have you noticed how that's happening more and more now? Good is attacked as evil. Evil is promoted as good in this country. Even by the President of the United States, the putative President of the United States, even by the so-called law enforcement agencies, the FBI, the Department of Justice, they're persecuting people for righteousness saying all kinds of things against them falsely, raising up false accusations. The media is doing exactly the same thing. Jesus said it was going to happen. Do we rise up with attitudes of bitterness and anger? No. We rise up and stand in righteousness. We seek to protect other people, but we have to be careful about our attitudes. Because attitudes always produce behavior after their kind. And finally, Jesus said, rejoice. I don't know about you, but things right today don't seem like they provide a lot of room for rejoicing, do they? I'm not rejoicing about injustice. I'm not rejoicing about uh, people who are accused falsely. 
I'm not rejoicing about uh, how our current government is intentionally trying to destroy the underpinnings of the country economically, morally, spiritually, militarily, in every way, seeking to reduce us, to absorb us into a new world order. I'm not rejoicing about that. But what I am rejoicing about is that God has given me and us the privilege of living in a time like this to be his hand extended, to be Jesus with skin on, so to speak, as my wife says, to to truly live out these attitudes of being in the crucible of these end times and be exceedingly glad. For great is our reward in heaven. Why? Jesus said, because that's how they persecuted the prophets which were before you. In fact, that's how they persecuted Jesus. They falsely accused him. Even the religious leaders of the day falsely accused him. They even suborned perjury people to testify against him falsely. The religious leaders did that. They were full of envy. That's an attitude. Even the secular, crusty Roman governor Pontius Pilate saw through it all. He said it was for, but for envy that they brought him. Attitudes. This is a big deal, friends. Now, to help you apply this, not just from reading the Sermon on the Mount, but in practical ways concerning our country, concerning our lives. You see, if I would be treated faithfully, I must be faithful. If I would be honorable or experience honor, I must be honorable. You begin to get the picture. Renewing the soul of America, one person at a time, beginning with you. An $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA, write to us. And yes, let's be in prayer. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord, before others. Let's walk in humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.